The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 16. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. Whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or to be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. Please be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you were listening as I just read today's gospel text, and at some point you thought to yourself, wait a minute, what? Um, That's actually a pretty good sign that indeed you were listening uh, as I read today's gospel text, because it is widely regarded almost universally so, as the most confusing parable in the Bible. One commentator I read calls it wildly ambiguous. (laughs) Historically, ambiguity hasn't, as a rule, been something I really delight in getting from Jesus, uh, especially when I'm trying to work on a sermon, which at the end of the day you hope isn't so ambiguous. But as I've aged, as I've, you know, morphed into what you now have, which is to say, old Pastor Roger, I found myself more and more starting not to mind some ambiguity, as much as I once did. In fact, I find, I find, my, I find myself um, once in a while almost kind of cherishing some ambiguity, even in Scripture. One of the reasons, I think, is because we now, though we seem to live in this hyper-polarized world where so many people live a life as though nothing is ambiguous, where almost everything is absolutely black and white, where everything is absolutely clear, where anybody who thinks anything other than I do is about absolutely everything is absolutely clearly an idiot. I find that that kind of totally unambiguous view of the world, I find that to be not particularly compelling. 
uh, I find it not to be very good at truth-telling. Because I don't find myself living or being a pastor in a world where everything's black and white. I find myself living and being a pastor in a world where there are just a lot of things that are a lot of shades of gray. And uh, I don't think we find our way forward faithfully or truthfully by, de- by denying that. I think we find our way faithfully and truthfully by, uh, by acknowledging that. And once we acknowledge that, then we can kind of lean into it and see where that goes. And it might even go to some places that aren't that ambiguous. Which takes us to this wildly ambiguous parable whose ambiguity today we're going to embrace and lean into because over the years I've actually um, come to think uh, that this parable's ambiguity may actually be part of its wisdom and is also, I think, part of its charm. Because one thing that is totally unambiguously clear is that this parable, uh, in its greater Lucan context, is part of a larger section. We started this larger section last week. We're going to continue with it next week. It's an extended portion in Luke's Gospel in which Jesus speaks to the topic of faith and faithfulness and money. And surely for people of faith, that is a topic that can be ambiguous sometimes, can it not? I mean, sell everything you own and give to the poor. Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke, and we say to ourselves, well, if I sell everything I have, then I'll be poor, and then I can't give anything to anybody. And Jesus elsewhere in this same Gospel says, give to absolutely everyone who begs from you. And we say to ourselves, yeah, but if I do that, I mean, if I give money, for example, to every single person with a cardboard sign at every single stoplight, I mean, how do I know I'm not, you know, perhaps enabling poor behavior? I mean, I don't know what they're going to use that money for. Maybe the best thing would be it will be better for them if I don't give them money. And so we drive by and we feel like maybe that's the right thing to do. But, of course, we feel a little bit guilty at the very same time. And there you are at ambiguity. It's oftentimes, I think, the exact name of the place. It's the name of the street corner where we and faith and money do sometimes find ourselves trying to live together. So let's turn to this wildly ambiguous parable and see what it might say to us who find ourselves living in more than a few ambiguous situations at times. There was a rich man. Did I mention? I did. This is part of Luke's gospel. Uh, It's about faith and faithfulness and money. There was a rich man, Jesus said to his disciples, how come the church always talks about money? We don't always talk about money, but we do talk about money sometimes because Jesus talked about money and we're Jesus' people. Sorry, that was a rant. There was a rich man, Jesus said to his disciples, who had a manager and charges were brought that this man was squandering his property. No ambiguity so far. This rich man is a business manager. Uh, The Bible, in some translations, would call him a steward, whom he entrusted with the management of his business, seemingly kind of maybe an ag finance or ag supply kind of business, a business not owned by the manager, um, but rather to be managed by him, to be stewarded by him, his charge being faithfully to look out for the interests of this rich man who is the actual owner. What we discover right from the beginning, however, is this particular manager didn't faithfully do that. He rather, Jesus said, squandered the owner's resources, at which point a whistleblower, apparently of some kind, uh, blew the whistle on him. 
So the owner, Jesus says, summoned him and said to him, what's this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your stewardship, your management, because you can't be my manager any longer. The owner, in other words here, confronts him, tells him he's going to fire him, but he gives him a little time to get the books up to date. Um, hindsight being 2020, what he probably should have done is confront him, um, fire him immediately, and then had the folks from security escort him to the front door, taking away his laptop and his keys and his online access. Because what happens next is the manager says to himself, what am I going to do now that my master is taking my position away from me? I'm, 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 I don't, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Still no ambiguity, right? He's clearly got a problem. He's soon unemployed, and when the reason why gets out, he won't ever be able to get a job like this one, at least not around here. And he's got neither the interests or the skill set to do other things, things beneath him. But he's got an idea how to stitch together a self-made golden parachute so that he will have what he needs after he is let go. Here's what I'll do, he says. So that when I'm dismissed as manager, people will welcome me into their homes. And what he does is contact the people who owe his master money, tells them if they settle up their accounts immediately, they can get completely out of debt for a a fraction of the cost because he'll actually write it down, in some cases write it down quite a bit. Apparently he has some sense of how much each person could actually give at a moment's notice. And he's got the authority, the legal authority to do this because he is technically and legally still the manager, still the steward. He knows he's going to be fired, but he hasn't yet been fired. And so if they pay that reduced amount, he tells his master's debtors the entirety of their debt is going to be written off as paid in full. The deal, he says, however, is for today only. For reasons not at all ambiguous, they all jump at the opportunity. Which takes us to the last sentence of the parable, where at last ambiguity makes its very dramatic entrance. As Jesus concludes the parable by saying, and his master commended the dishonest steward because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Well, the most obvious ambiguity, the low-hanging fruit ambiguity-wise, is surely that most Everyone who's been hearing this parable up to this point has been thinking while listening that the master in the parable, the owner of it all, surely represents God, the owner of it all. Except that the master in the parable in the end now commends the dishonest manager's dishonesty, commends his scheming shrewdness, with Jesus then going on to add the observation that the children of this age are better at that kind of thing than are the children of light, which I imagine is probably true, but what are you supposed to do with that? Title my sermon, Come to the Dark Side, where the ends justify the means? I don't think so. Then in our text, Jesus goes on to double down 
ambiguity-wise by telling his disciples, whom, by the way, we were told at the beginning, his disciples are who he's telling this story to. We will be told later, however, that there are some Pharisees listening in. That matters. Therefore, he says to his disciples, however, now, with Pharisees listening in, therefore, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they they apparently being your friends that you've shrewdly made with dirty money and devious means, they, your dubiously bought and paid for friends, they may welcome you into the eternal homes, which could more literally be translated eternal tabernacles, tabernacle being the Bible word for the place where God dwells with God's people. Well, wait a minute, right? I mean, that... This doesn't, is it just me? This doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, Jesus says to the disciples with the Pharisees listening in, so that when it's gone, they, they being these friends you bought and paid for by totally sticking it to your boss, may welcome you into your eternal dwelling place in the presence of God. Now, here's what I think, and this parable is uh, very ambiguous, so I could be absolutely wrong. But here's what I think. I think both the manager's commendation of the dishonest manager, the the owner's commendation in, in the parable, and then Jesus' closing recommendation to the disciples and the Pharisees listening in to be like this dishonest manager uh, only makes sense if we hear those, both of those things being spoken uh, as somewhere between tongue-in-cheek facetiously and absolutely bitingly, sarcastically. As in the master in the parable, seeing that he's been taken to the cleaners by this dishonest steward to whom he had entrusted his business to look out for it for him and in his best interests, but who instead, shrewdly, angle-workingly, looking out for himselfly, sticks it to the owner and his interests, and he does it so deviously legally, there's nothing the owner can do about it. At which point, seeing that he got took by a master taker, he now does commend it's now soon to be fired employee, but I think it's very faint praise. As in, very good. Very good. You saw an angle, and you took it, and you took me. Bravo. Insert golf clap. I may not be right, but that's how I understand the words of commendation to his um, dishonest manager. And similarly, it's the only way I can make sense of Jesus' words to the disciples right after the parable where he does say, therefore, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it's gone, they may welcome you into your eternal home. Totally, bitingly sarcastic, I think, as in, yeah, sure. You work every angle you can. You make every friend you can via whatever slimy means you can. And then maybe those bought-off friends can be the ones to welcome you into your eternal home in the presence of your eternal God. Biting, I think. Because why? Because the only one who can welcome people into anyone's eternal homes in the presence of the eternal God is God. And that understanding, I think, if it's right, does serve to lead us rather unambiguously well to the final words in this text where he says, if then you've not been faithful with dishonest wealth, 
the world's kind of wealth, who will entrust you true riches? If you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for they will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other, at which point Jesus then speaks the absolutely unambiguous punchline to this whole scene. You cannot. Notice he does not say you should not. He says you cannot. It is impossible to serve God and wealth. And that's where our text ends, but it's actually not where the scene ends. Remember, this is part of a larger scene. We'll go on next week. The next thing Luke says is those Pharisees who had been listening in, hearing this unambiguous punchline, you cannot serve God and wealth, Luke says they then laughed at him. They ridiculed him because, says Luke, they... And they who pranced around church every week claiming the religious high and superior, superior ground when it came to God and things godly, they, Luke says, were actually above all lovers of money. In Scripture, I want to be clear, um, money's never referred to as something necessarily or inherently evil. The love of money, on the other hand, is roundly condemned. For if a person in their heart loves money first, then the best God can be is second. And a God who is second isn't God anymore. That's okay, says Jesus, in this biting parable which the Pharisees do ridicule because it is, it's absolutely, I'm sure, biting them. That's okay, he says to these and to all whose hearts have a throne upon which sits and is worshipped a God called money. That's okay, Jesus says, have at it. Do all you can to make all the money you can, doing whatever, using whatever slimy and dishonest means you can, to be as rich as you can, and then richly and extravagantly look out for nothing but the interests of you. Until the day comes when your success can culminates on the day that you, oh, so successfully and impressively, die rich. And then surely your riches will welcome you home, right? There are many things not clear in this text, but we do have at least one thing Jesus says crystally clearly. Money and God can't both be our highest priority. Because one and only one thing can be your highest priority. You can't have a tie. And when God is that, our call is to love our neighbors rather than treating them as lesser people to use or greater people to deceive. For such hierarchies vanish as God entrusts to us God's treasure of God's love. And unlike earthly treasures, the more love we give, the more love we know. And knowing that, shrewd stewards of love give it away unambiguously, generously, until love, at last, is what welcomes them home. Amen.